She walks by the sea, counting shells on the beach. One, two, three. She picks them up one by one, collecting their ocean suns. She puts them inside of her pocket and walks them back to the town. And she says to all of the people, I collect. Did all the sounds I collected all the sounds Hello and welcome to Collected Sounds. I am your host, Amy L, and I'm really glad you're here. This story is called Afterward, and the author is Edith Wharton. It was published in 1910. It is an ironic ghost story about greed and retribution. This episode is Chapter 2, so if you've not already listened to Chapter 1, I recommend doing so. In Chapter 1, we were introduced to an American couple, Mary and Ned Boyne, who have moved to an English country estate. They've just retired after Ned's business brought them a substantial windfall. Mary feels there's a secret between she and Ned. She hopes the feeling is coming from the house itself, or more specifically a ghost, because what they wanted most out of their home in England is a ghost. Are you sitting comfortably? Then I'll begin. Afterward by Edith Wharton, Chapter 2 Weary with her thoughts, she moved toward the window. The library was now completely dark, and she was surprised to see how much faint light the outer world still held. As she peered out into it across the court, A figure shaped itself in the tapering perspective of bare lines. It looked like a mere blot of deeper gray in the grayness, and for an instant, as it moved toward her, her heart thumped to the thought, It's the ghost! She had time, in that long instant, to feel suddenly that the man of whom, two months earlier, she had a brief, distant vision from the roof, was now, at his predestined hour, about to reveal himself as not having been Peter's, and her spirit sank under the impending fear of the disclosure. But almost with the next tick of the clock, the ambiguous figure, gaining substance and character, showed itself even to her weak sight as her husband's, and she turned away to meet him as he entered with the confession of her folly. It's really too absurd, she laughed out from the threshold, but I never can remember. Remember what? Boyne questioned as they drew together. That when one sees the Lang ghost, one never knows it. Her hand was on his sleeve, and he kept it there, but with no response in his gesture or in the lines of his fagged, preoccupied face. Did you think you'd seen it? he asked, after an appreciable interval. Why, I actually took you for it, my dear, in my mad determination to spot it. Me? Just now? His arm dropped away, and he turned from her with a faint echo of her laugh. Really, dearest, you better give it up, if that's the best you can do. Yes, I give it up, I give it up. Have you? She asked, turning round on him abruptly. The parlor maid had entered with letters and a lamp, and the light struck up into Boyne's face as he bent above the tray she presented. Have you? Mary perversely insisted when the servant had disappeared on her errand of illumination. Have I what? He rejoined absently, the light bringing out the sharp stamp of worry between his brows as he turned over the letters. Given up trying to see the ghost, her heart beat a little at the experiment she was making. Her husband, laying his letters aside, moved away into the shadow of the hearth. 
I never tried, he said, tearing open the wrapper of a newspaper. Well, of course, Mary persisted. The exasperating thing is that there's no use trying, since one can't be sure till so long afterward. He was folding the paper as if he had hardly heard her. But after a pause, during which the sheets rustled spasmodically between his hands, he lifted his head to say abruptly, Have you any idea how long? Mary had sunk into a chair beside the fireplace. From her seat, she looked up, startled, at her husband's profile, which was darkly projected against the circle of lamplight. "'No, none, have you?' she retorted, repeating her former phrase with the added keenness of intention. Boyne crumpled the paper into a bunch and then inconsequently turned back with it toward the lamp. "'Lord, no, I only meant,' he explained with a faint tinge of impatience. "'Is there any legend, any tradition as to that?' "'Not that I know of,' she answered. But the impulse to add, "'What makes you ask?' was checked by the reappearance of the parlor-maid with tea and a second lamp. With the dispersal of shadows and the repetition of the daily domestic office— Mary Boyne felt herself less oppressed by that sense of something mutely imminent which had darkened her solitary afternoon. For a few moments, she gave herself silently to the details of her task, and when she looked up from it, she was struck to the point of bewilderment by the change in her husband's face. He had seated himself near the farther lamp and was absorbed in the perusal of his letters, but was it something he had found in them, or merely the shifting of her own point of view that had restored his features to their normal aspect? The longer she looked, the more definitely the change affirmed itself. The lines of painful tension had vanished, and such traces of fatigue as lingered were the kind easily attributable to steady mental effort. He glanced up, as if drawn by her gaze, and met her eyes with a smile. "'I'm dying for my tea, you know. And here's a letter for you,' he said. She took the letter he held out in exchange for the cup she proffered him, and returning to her seat, broke the seal with the languid gesture of the reader whose interests are all enclosed in the circle of one cherished presence. Her next conscious motion was that of starting to her feet— the letter falling to them as she rose, while she held out to her husband a long newspaper clipping. Ned, what is this? What does it mean? He had risen at the same instant, almost as if hearing her cry before she uttered it, and for a perceptible space of time, he and she studied each other, like adversaries, watching for an advantage across the space between her chair and his desk. "'What's what? You fairly made me jump,' Boyne said at length, moving toward her with a sudden half-exasperated laugh. The shadow of apprehension was on his face again, not now a look of fixed foreboding, but a shifting vigilance of lips and eyes that gave her the sense of his feeling himself invisibly surrounded. Her hand shook so that she could hardly give him the clipping. "'The article from the Waukesha Sentinel. That man named Elwell has brought suit against you.' and there was something wrong about the Blue Star Mine. I can't understand more than half. They continued to face each other as she spoke, and to her astonishment, she saw that her words had the almost immediate effect of dissipating the strained watchfulness of his look. Oh, that! He glanced down at the printed slip, and then folded it with the gesture of one who handles something harmless and familiar. What is the matter with you this afternoon, Mary? I thought you'd got bad news. She stood before him, with her undefinable terror subsiding, slowly, under the reassuring touch of his composure. 
You knew about this then? It's all right? Certainly I knew about it, and it's all right. But what is it? I don't understand. What does this man accuse you of? Oh, pretty nearly every crime in the calendar. Boyne had tossed the clipping down and thrown himself comfortably into an armchair near the fire. Do you want to hear the story? It's not particularly interesting. Just a squabble over interests in the Blue Star. But who is this Elwell? I don't know the name. Oh, he's a fellow I put into it. Gave him a hand up. I told you all about him at the time. I dare say I must have forgotten. Vainly, she strained back among her memories. But if you helped him, why does he make this return? Oh, probably some shyster lawyer got a hold of him and talked him over. It's all rather technical and complicated. I thought that kind of thing bored you. His wife felt a sting of compunction. Theoretically, she deprecated the American wife's detachment from her husband's professional interests, but in practice, she'd always found it difficult to fix her attention on Boyne's report of the transactions in which his varied interests involved him. Besides, she had felt from the very first that, in a community where the amenities of living could be obtained only at the cost of efforts as arduous as her husband's professional labors, such brief leisure as they could command would be used as an escape from immediate preoccupations, a flight to the life they always dreamed of living. Once or twice, now that his new life had actually drawn its magic circle about them, she had asked herself if she had done right. But hitherto such conjectures had been no more than the retrospective excursions of an active fancy. Now, for the first time, it startled her a little to find how little she knew of the material foundation on which her happiness was built. She glanced again at her husband, and was reassured by the composure of his face, yet she felt the need of more definite grounds for her reassurance. But doesn't this suit worry you? Why have you never spoken to me about it? He answered both questions at once. I didn't speak of it at first because it did worry me, annoyed me rather. But it's all ancient history now. Your correspondence must have gotten hold of a back number of the Sentinel. She felt a quick thrill of relief. You mean it's over? He lost his case? There was just a perceptible delay in Boyne's reply. The suit's been withdrawn, that's all. But she persisted as if to exonerate herself from the inward charge of being too easily put off. Withdrawn, because he saw he had no chance? Oh, he had no chance, Boyne answered. She was still struggling with a dimly felt perplexity at the back of her thoughts. How long ago was it withdrawn? He paused, as if with a slight return of his former uncertainty. I've just heard the news now, but I've been expecting it. Just now, in one of your letters? Yes, in one of my letters. She made no answer and was aware only, after a short interval of waiting, that he had risen and, strolling across the room, had placed himself on the sofa by her side. She felt him, as he did so, press an arm about her. She felt his hand seek hers and clasp it, and turning slowly, drawn by the warmth of his cheek, she met the smiling clearness of his eyes. It's all right. It's all right, she questioned through the flood of her dissolving doubts. And, I give you my word, it was never righter, he laughed back at her, holding her close. Thank you for joining me. I hope you have enjoyed the story so far, and I hope you tune in next time for Chapter 3. I suggest you subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so that you don't miss it. 
this podcast is independently produced by me, Amy, at Collected Sounds Productions. The theme song was composed especially for Collected Sounds by Canel. Until next time.